to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members typically answer 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm hosting a special episode that's going to break a little bit from our typical 13-question format as we explore one of Colgate's most popular literature offerings for students and alumni called Living Writers. We are joined by two uh, previous guests of the podcast, Associate Professor of English, Jennifer Bryce, and Assistant Professor of History and Native American Studies, Ryan Hall. Professor Bryce is the director of Colgate's Living Writers Program, and Professor Hall is going to uh, help lend some expertise with respect to one of the Living Writers book selections this year. So professors, welcome to Back to 13. Thanks so much, Dan. That's great to be here. All right. So I think it's best to start off uh, this episode just with a little background about Living Writers itself, uh, what it is, when it started, who can participate, um, just kind of the foundation of, of what Living Writers is all about. Sure, I'll give you the capsule version. A lot of your listeners will already know that Fred Bush, the great, late, great Colgate professor of English and author of some 26 novels, started the course in 1980. Um, it went into mothballs in the early 2000s with Fred Bush's retirement in 2009. My wonderful colleague, Jane Pynchon, talked me into starting it back up again with her as my partner. Um, she and I taught it together for five years before she retired, and I just was counting on my fingers before this recording and realized I have done it for six years on my own. Basically, from, from the time Fred started it till now, it was a course meant for as many as 60 undergraduates who read roughly a book a week. And then um, they prepare questions for the author whom they meet in person on a Thursday afternoon when the writer comes to campus to give a reading. Starting in 2010, Jane Pynchon and I began offering a companion program to the undergraduate course for mainly for alumni and parents, people in the local community, so they could read the books, um, attend the readings in person or via live stream. And we began posting reviews and interviews with the writers. We called Living Writers Online a book group on steroids. And for the last 10 years, we've had a lot of people who've stayed with us for the whole journey. People often pick one, two, three books and, and join us for all the events around those books. Occasionally, an alum will read all nine or 10 and be there from the beginning. Hmm. And so there's always 10 books. Is that how the selection is? It's ranged from nine to 11. This year, it's 10 books, 11 writers, because for the first time, we're breaking new ground in all sorts of ways. Ryan's here partly because we're doing a horror novel for the first time. We're also doing a volume of science fiction for the first time. And also for the first time, we're, we're doing a book that is co-authored. It has two, two writers, Molly McCauley-Brown and Susanna Nevison, whose father teaches computer science at Colgate um, have written a collection of epistol epistolary poems. Hmm. They're nice. both coming too. 
So how how do you all select the books? Is there a, a, a group of faculty that get together or is this like your uh, is this your chance to kind of dig in and, and select authors that have kind of uh, shown up on your radar that have impressed? The four of us who teach creative writing, me, Peter Balakian, CJ Hauser, and Greg Ames usually put our heads together to, to talk about the list. But I also take recommendations from colleagues and participants in the program. Occasionally, people will write and say, I'm an alum or I'm married to an alum who's written all these books. How about bringing this person? Um, so so it's a group effort because I teach the class. I kind of get the last word, but um, it really, it, it's a very complex, I think I've said this to you before, I've used this metaphor with you before, it's, it's like complicated flower arranging too. You pick one or two people, maybe you have a big reputation and also a big fee attached to them, and then the other pieces start to fall into place. But the Stephen Graham Jones novel, The Only Dead Indians, um, that's on the list was was suggested by Ryan Hall was actually not the first person to put this book on my radar. Right. He wanted to put it on my list the most emphatically. And I, <laughs> so I called him up this spring and said, talk to me about this book. Why do you think it's so great? All right. Well, so let's let's kick it off with, I guess, let, we can talk about that book. I know the first... Um, I guess, uh, session where uh, folks will be gathering is September 9th, right? And uh, that will be, uh, we're recording this podcast a little early, but this is going to air about a week beforehand. Um, so I don't know if you want to walk through all the titles of the different books that have been selected this year, and then we can kind of do a little synopsis for each, and then we can pause for um, uh, only uh, the Only Good Indians. All right. I'll try to be kind of brief. Really, if people are interested, then they should go to the Living Writers website, colgate.edu backslash living writers, and they will find everything they need there, including instructions on how to participate in the program and to, you know, really to do as much or as little as they want to do. And the site has... Um, author bios, synopses of each book. Um, it has a rationale for each book. It says, you know, why, why did we pick this? It has interviews with the authors, reviews of the book, and in some cases, background reading. Um, Ryan may have noticed that at the end of The Only Good Indians, Stephen Graham Jones talks about uh, works that were influential to him in writing the book. One is a novel by Louise Erdrich. We can't post that, obviously, but the other was a, a poem by Jane Stickey, A Birth, a very short poem. And so we posted that poem on the website. There's also um, links for joining us by Zoom if people want to come remotely. Oh, and the best thing is links to these Monday evening book discussions. We'll have a hour-long book discussion on Monday, on the Monday evening from seven to eight before the writer comes on the Thursday. So Ryan um, and my colleague, Sarah Wider, who teaches Native American literature, will join me on Monday, October 18th from seven to eight to talk about the only good Indians with me. And also just to get other people's responses. These are very laid back, very informal sessions. People shouldn't even feel like they had to have finished the book in order to come. 
So there's links to sign up for those as well. But but really, I'll just jet through the list really fast because yes. people can find everything they want on the site. Valeria Luiselli um, is coming on September 9th. She's a MacArthur winning um, author, and this is a very slim volume of nonfiction. She's followed by Dana Spiota and Jonathan Dee, two novelists who both teach at Syracuse University who are married to each other. Those are two fat, wonderful um, novels. Uh, Ted Chen. Well, let's give the names of the novels for the for those that don't All for right. those that don't visit the site. I will. I'm so I'm I'm so worried about taking up time. No, Wayward. Dana Spiota's new novel Wayward just came out to great critical acclaim. It's a post-Trump election novel about that's set in Syracuse. It's really wonderful. Jonathan D's novel The Locals is set in the Berkshire Berkshires between. Uh, 9-11 in 2008, a big panoramic novel of a population and a place. Next is Ted Chang's story collection, Exhalation. Ted Chang is um, the guy who wrote the short story that became the Oscar-winning film Arrival. So he's the sci-fi guy this fall. On October 7th, we have Michael Punter coming. Michael Punter teaches the theater course for Colgate students in London. And we're doing a horror play of his called Scary War. And, and partly I picked that play in conversation with Mike Punter so that we'd have two works of horror on the syllabus and we could talk about the ways that horror gets made. On October 21st, Paul Beatty, author of The Sellout, is coming. The Sellout was the first book by an American to win the Man Booker Prize, one of the most prestigious prizes in the country. It is a really wild ride, the sellout, um, and, and will be hugely fun. Then in late October, we have Stephen Graham Jones coming for The Only Good Indians. We'll say more about that in a moment. Um, in early November, Molly McCauley-Brown and Susanna Nevison will come to talk about their collection of poems about being women, being disabled, being poets in the world. Um, in mid-November, and this might be interesting to Ryan too, Danielle Evans is coming with a story collection called The Office of Historical Corrections. And the title, the title novella is actually about a historian, Ryan, who leaves ag an academic career in order to become a public historian. Mm -hmm. um, it goes around the country correcting plaques and other accounts of history that are incorrect. She's like a professional pedant. It's wonderful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and on December second, <laughs> the, the closing out the series is Omar El Akkad um, with the novel What Strange Paradise, which just came out over the summer. We read on Twitter um, American War by Omar El Akkad, which was a fabulous experience in the month of July. We just read a few pages a day and talked about it on Twitter with other um, faculty colleagues from all over the university and um, loved that novel. And El Akkad's new novel, What Strange Paradise, has just come out, but it, it's making headlines everywhere right now. It's, it's the New York Times Book Review podcast. It's, a, it's an extraordinary novel, and we were really lucky to get him. Oh, sounds really great. You wanna, do you want to talk a little bit now about uh, The Only Good Indians, maybe about the selection itself and uh, you know, just digging into a little bit of the content? I know you said it was a little bit more of a, uh, more of a difficult read than some of the others. 
I've been talking so much. Maybe Ryan, yeah. I can, Ryan can tell you about the process of twisting my arm a little bit. But I'm a total convert now, but it took me a while to get there. Well, do you want me to, to start about why I was drawn to the book or what I found so brilliant about the book or both? Yes and yes. Yeah, all right. Um, well, I've been aware of Stephen Graham Jones for uh, a few years. I saw him do a reading um, in New Haven when I was in graduate school at Yale and um, just thought he was just really just a wonderful storyteller and, and really creative and just different than any other native writer that I'd really um, seen or, or, or read about. Um, and so a friend of mine who teaches native lit, you know, told me this past winter, did you see this new book that came out, The Only Good Indians? And so I looked it up and I mean, just looking at the cover, I was hooked. Just something about it. Um, you know, the title is really evocative. You know, it's a callback. It's, it's referring to this 19th century phrase that he refers to in the book. You know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So it's this sort of very dark humor in the title. Um, and this, this image of this elk with its eye, this black eye, um, that I just find so unsettling um, and kind of riveting. It, it reminds me of uh, just something very unhuman um, about these black eyes that he keeps referring, like, referring to in the book and returning to. So just, just looking at the, at the, the title and the cover, I was, I was in. Um, he's also Blackfoot, and this takes place in uh, Blackfoot country and Blackfoot, Blackfeet Reservation. And I'm wrote my first book was uh, History of the Blackfoot. Um, and the book more than met my expectations. Uh, as Jennifer will tell you, I am uh, as enthusiastic as it gets about this book. I just reread it um, last couple days and I loved it even more the second time. You know, this book is, it's, it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a great, a truly great horror story um, that happens to be about native people. It's also a truly great work of native literature that happens to be horror. Um, so I really see him. I, I think some of the genius of this book is how it's it's a brilliant example of both of these genres. And it mixes these genres in a way that I wasn't really used to, which I just think makes him so singular and so important as a, as a writer. Um, I could go on and on. Um, just about like, I'll say briefly what I find so great about the content of the book. Um, you know, like I said, it's truly scary. Uh, it's it's a really like, it's got a creative uh, villain. He builds suspense in such an amazing way. I think the act two of this book, The Sweat Lodge Massacre is one of the gri most gripping sequences of any novel I've ever read. It's just, just builds his tension. So he's, it's a truly scary horror novel and it sticks to landing, which is the problem with the horror genre so often, is it's a really difficult genre, I think, is because if once you, I don't know, when you resolving the story, it kind of takes the energy out of the story so often, but that doesn't happen here. Um, so it's, it's a great read in that way. Um, but it's just such a sophisticated work of native literature uh, is what else it does. I mean, it is, Reading this book with, you know, and I'm not native, but I've, you know, been in, in that, in the native studies world. And I've been to this place, the Blackfeet Reservation many times. And it just, it felt like such an indigenous story, such a native story right off the bat. Um, all of these themes, which we can talk more about, you know, um, 
religion, um, the relationship with the supernatural world that's reciprocal and productive and sort of scary ways. Um, the relationship between generations is something that comes up again and again in this book. Um, uh, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, but also the generations farther back, they're always talking about the deep past. Um, and the, the weight of history that is all over in this book. Uh, this, this place where they are is this, this ancient place, this ancient homeland, and it's, this, and it's this place they've been for so long and so much has happened and so much, there's so much experience, but also so much trauma and so much pain that they carry around with them um, that inf inflects sort of everything they do. Uh, and I just felt all of those things so profoundly reading this book, maybe more than any other book of Native literature I've read, or at least equal to any other book of Native literature I've read. Um, and the last thing I'll say, when I, as I, I turn it back over to Jennifer here, uh, so a, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was speaking with a mentor of mine um, who uh, is a historian of the American West, and we were talking about Stephen Graham Jones and how brilliant we think he is, and I said, I told her, you know, I had kind of uh, brought, you know, really pushed for this idea of bringing Stephen Graham Jones to campus and reading The Only Good Indians. And I joked to her, I'm like, I hope that my colleagues don't blame me for, you know, giving them nightmares when they read this book and they're not upset with me <laughs> and my students too, because I'm assigning this book in my course this fall and we'll see how that goes. Um, and she said, well, maybe they shouldn't be sleeping well, you know? Uh, maybe they should be thanking you for their interrupted sleep um, because this book raises some really <laughs> some really uncomfortable truths i think about american history um anyway so i'll i'll i'll, I'll stop there <laughs> i'm sold i'm i'm going to read it for sure i, I wanted to <laughs> check it out and um you know uh jennifer i'm curious as to your thoughts um about choosing the novel i remember when we spoke last there was a a hesitancy or a resistance to genre work right and and horror and sci-fi in particular now you've got several works in living writers uh that kind of check those boxes i don't know i know i can't even explain it dan it, it's like the pandemic just came along and <laughs> Well, you know, some people will say I threw my standards out the window, but I, I that's that's really not the case. This is, you know, the work that we pick for living writers has to be literary. And, you know, what does that mean? It's, you know, there might be an impulse to say, oh, well, you're just being snobs. It, it's not um, that it has to be highbrow. It's that the writers have to care about language, that the, the words matter, that, that we're not just reading through the words to get to, you know, what happens. And, and Stephen Graham Jones is a, he's a really serious wordsmith and a really thoughtful guy, as Ted Chang is. Um, my, my resistance to horror is just I'm one of those people who does not like to be scared. I don't go on roller coasters. I don't go to scary movies, although I got myself to the Jordan Peele movies and people have compared Stephen Graham Jones to Jordan Peele. It's sort of this is literary horror as um, uh, us and uh, Get Out are sort of art house um, horror films. You know, two two things I thought of while um while Ryan was speaking. 
Um, what, one, I just want to say a little bit more about the novel itself. It, 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 horror has subcategories I've learned in doing my research for this book. And, and this belongs to the, the subcategory of the revenge horror. And, and Ryan is absolutely right about this being a novel with lots and lots of layers in it. There's one immediate act, a bro broken tradition on the part of um, these four men on the Blackfeet reservation. They, they do something that violates um, natural relationship, the relationship between, between the Blackfeet Indians and the natural world, between one generation and another generation. Um, it's, a, it's a violation in all sorts of ways. And, and the, the whole novel spins out um, the, the revenge on these men for this, this breaking this tradition, breaking this taboo. But there's, there's a deeper layer, which is um, bro broken tradition, broken, broken taboos that go way, way back in history to something that the whole tribe did to um, did to a herd of elk. Well, what is this, Ryan? Many generations ago, the train story, not that many generations ago, because yeah. it's got a train in it, but probably in the 19th century anyway. So it's it's got layers of history in it, layers of storytelling. It's a book that is really interested in storytelling. Who's telling stories? Who's believable? Who's listening? Um, they're tribal stories, news stories fantasy stories, as Ryan said, father-daughter stories. Um, at one point, in um, Stephen Graham Jones has one of his characters say Indian stories all loop back on each other if they're any good. And that's a, that's a line that hangs over the whole piece. Um, the other thing to say, though, is that, that I when I was telling you about all the riches that are on the website, one of the things that's on the website is a, is a three-question podcast with each of the authors. And I just talked with Stephen Graham Jones yesterday. I asked him about storytelling, and he had wonderful things to say. But I also asked him about how horror works. And, um, and it's so much like what Ryan was just describing in his conversation with, um, what is it, Patricia Limerick Nelson? Is that who that was? Patricia, Patricia Nelson Limerick, yeah. Limerick, yeah, like yeah. it was reversed. But he he said horror, horror is disruptive. Um, he said, it, it, oh, and I, I, he and I were talking about something Michael, Mike Punter said about horror, and he absolutely agreed with it, that it's, um, it, it gets in, in, in between cause and effect and what we expect, um, you know, one action to lead to. Um, we just have a habit of assuming that, you know, if we, if we pour ourselves a cup of tea and then we go to sip out of the cup, we're getting tea. We're not getting, you know, lemonade. And he said, um, horror, horror, when it works properly, it disrupts our emotional and thought processes in a way that's really enriching and great. It, it should shake us up, um, but it should shake us up in a, in a really good way. Both, both Stephen Graham Jones and Mike Punter agreed, too, that horror doesn't get nearly enough respect, probably because it provokes a visceral response in us. Um, Stephen Graham Jones talked more about this, that it makes us scream or cry or jump. And 
we humans have a tendency to think that anything that provokes a visceral response must be what not nearly as valuable as something that makes us um, think about profound philosophical issues. But as Ryan says, this novel does make you think about profound philosophical issues, but it's also a really good read. As a matter of fact, the only warning that I would issue besides there's a lot of gore. You would not really want to read this late at night is um, you're not going to be able to put it down. So yeah, you would want to right, right, Ryan, you would want to like schedule five hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want big chunks of time for this. No noted. <laughs> so there's also discussion on Twitter, right? So um, people that are participating, I mean, you know, involvement in this is free, right? It's just, you just have to buy the book and um, there is discussion. What is the Twitter handle for folks? It is. At Colgate LW. And then, so people discuss the, the works there as they're going through them or? When we do the summer read during the summer, we read like 10 or 15 pages a day and talk about those 10 or 15 pages. I post prompts and colleagues post prompts. Um, but once we start the living writer season, it's going to be like a runaway train. I'm hoping that Ryan and I will get to Twitter a few times to to post a few prompts about the novel, but we're not going to actually take people through it page by page as we did with American War in July. I saw those uh, alerts come up. That's why. Oh, it's super fun. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, anything else you want to say uh, about the the selections or just about uh, people participating? Um, you know, we've already talked about the the website where they can go, then all of the. I mean, the tons of detail that is uh, available about uh, all of the books online. I, people can also order the books from uh, the Colgate Bookstore uh, on the page there. Um, you have uh, the podcast that you record with the authors. Uh, and then there's obviously this discussion. And I think hashtag Colgate Living Writers, right, for, uh, for the chats. Yes, exactly. Oh, and it, but it seems worth telling people that Stephen Graham Jones, this is, this is, we're so lucky. Do you know how hard it is to get a horror writer for Halloween? He's coming <laughs> on October 28th. It's very cool. And I know if anyone has questions about living writers, they can send emails, right? They can, they can uh, reach out livingwriters at colgate.edu. That's right. All right. Well, thank you both for your time today. And I hope people uh, take a few moments to check out Living Writers online uh, on the Colgate website. So it's colgate.edu backslash living writers. And uh, thank you so much, Jennifer and Ryan, for, for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. That was a pleasure. And that was the special episode of 13. Uh, thank you to Professor Bryce and Professor Hall for uh, joining the show today to talk a little bit about Colgate's legendary Living Writers Program. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have questions about the podcast, feel free to send us a note at 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories. <laughs>